Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. We want to begin this morning by just pausing and uh, having a moment of prayer in light of some of the tragedies that have been happening uh, recently in the last few years, but particularly in this last week uh, here in our country. And anytime these things happen, it reminds us that there are tragedies that happen all the time, and we probably don't hear about most of them, but some of them we do. And the fact is, a lot of people lost their lives this last week. A lot of people are mourning um, the lives of those who are no longer with us. And we, I don't know about you, but but... In these kind of moments, I don't always know what to say, certainly wouldn't know what to, what to do in, in certain um, positions of influence or whatever, but, but I do know that something is, is wrong and something needs to be done, and, and that God is, we recognize that whatever the answers are, they begin and end with Jesus. We believe that to be the case, and that we are commanded, first thing in these situations, to pray. Uh, not that we won't then act or move in certain ways, but first thing is to pray and to remember that God is God and to let him be God and to and to ask him to show us what our parts are in this process. So if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you to uh, pray with me as we try to articulate to God some of what um, we're thinking and feeling in these kind of situations. Father God, we acknowledge your presence in the room. We know that you are a good father, you're a good, a good Lord, a good king, wise and just. You protect the innocent, you pursue justice top to bottom, and uh, we, we come with sadness and confusion and frustration, and uh, we, we just recognize, God, that we live in a world that is broken, that, that tears itself apart, and we, in this country, God, we wrestle with our history, we wrestle with our present situation and some of the tension between races, classes, fill in the blank, um, and so we pray. Specifically, God, in, in a world where racism is still a very real, real reality, we pray for peace. We pray for your peace, Jesus. We read that you are our peace, that you alone are able to bring together Jew and Gentile, male and female, black and white, um, that, that you are the reconciler. And so we ask that you would help us to see how our reconciliation with you should be manifested and reflected towards our neighbors, brothers, sisters, friends, strangers. And so we pray that you would clear out for us um, a path and help us to know what we can do in our small corner of the world to pursue reconciliation and peace and to honor you the way we reflect the gospel towards those around us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, we are, um, as Scott said, continuing our series in the book of Acts. And in this series, what we're doing is looking at some of the individual lives of people in the earliest church. The book of Acts tells the story of the first followers of Jesus. And we're asking, what, if, what can we learn about our life with God by looking at their life with God? What do we learn from their story about how to engage our stories? And, and what are some of the things that we see? And, and something that we've seen consistently in this series is that really the book of Acts and the Christian life is about the Holy Spirit. 
It's about God's personal presence dwelling within us. We believe this to be true, that God has sent his spirit, his own personal presence, to empower us and to fill us, and not just kind of once in a while, but actually to take up residence in our lives. We believe that when we become followers of Jesus and put our faith in him, that God's spirit takes up residence inside of us and lives in us and is always with us. And that is the reality in which we walk every single moment of every single day, no matter what's going on around us, in us, through us. That is true of us. And I've, I've, had to, I've gotten the chance to have a number of really fun conversations with some of you in the lobby afterward or seeing you throughout town or whatever about what this series is teaching you and what you're learning from the Word and what's going on in your life and just also other things you've heard. And a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a family out front and uh, they were telling me, she, this lady was tell, talking about how, you know, we, we read the Bible stories and we think, wouldn't it have been cool to be there? Like when God was doing all this crazy stuff and we think, man, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to ask Moses, like, what was it like? You ever think this? Moses, what was it like to see that bush burning, but it wasn't, it was like on fire, but not burning up? Or what was it like to see the waters parted in front of you? Or, or Abraham saying, what was it like to hear God actually audibly call your name? Or Solomon, when you built the temple and God came down and his presence filled the place, what was it like to be there? And she was saying how in reality, though, we're going to ask them the question and they're going to say, we don't want to talk about us. I want to talk to you. What was it like to have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you? What was it like not just to have God with you alongside, but actually like in you living from inside? Help me understand what that feels like, what that seems like, what you think, what you do. And they want to know from us, what is that like? We didn't get to experience the indwelling of the Spirit. And the reality is, if we're honest, probably most of us are going to say, well, much of the time it just felt kind of normal. <laughs> I mean, it just felt kind of ordinary, you know? Like, what do we do with the fact that most of the moments in our days are pretty unspectacular, pretty ordinary? I mean, we could do one of two things. We could, we could kind of, in my mind, immaturely try to conjure up strong feelings all the time and try to make ourselves feel spiritual and, and keep fighting this, chasing this, this feeling Or we can take the more mature biblical route and recognize that it's in the ordinary, unspectacular moments that the Holy Spirit does some of his most surprisingly inspiring work. We can recognize that God wants to do something with our everyday lives. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about sanctifying the ordinary. We're talking about how how we can make holy or recognize the holiness, the opportunity present in all of the actual, normal, daily, routine moments of our lives. That's the idea. I've had a hard time trying to sort of boil down the, the truth that I want to communicate. And, and I want to tell you kind of what my working thought has been. I'm not going to put it on the screens because I think it's kind of irreverent. But if you want to know what I'm going to tell you in one sentence, essentially, I came here this morning to say, shake what your papa gave you, okay? Like, that's the truth that I want you to walk out here with. I want you to shake what your papa gave you because God's given you all sorts of things, abilities, um, histories, opportunities, and I want you to see those things as chances for you to live on mission with God. So if you go out to dinner with some friends tonight and they're like, oh, did you go to church today? Yes, I did. What'd you learn about? Well, I was told to shake what my papa gave me. Like you have our permission to say that. That's the idea today. Now we're going to get this idea from Acts chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts 16, and we're going to read about Paul's time in Philippi. Love this chapter. Love these events that took place in this city in what is today we call Greece. Uh, Then it was called Macedonia. We're going to look at what Paul did here in Philippi. It's Acts 16, and I kind of want to read the whole story to you. So we're going to begin in verse 11 and read on through verse 40. And uh, and then we're going to focus in on one particular part of this. Acts 16, 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. 
From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, this is verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailers were commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, Uh, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, and threw us into prison? And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them Then they left. I I love this story. I love everything about it. There's so many details in here that I'd love to unpack if we had all day. We're going to keep ourselves pretty focused, but I got to tell you a couple of my favorite things about it. Part of my favorite thing about this story is I imagine the conversations that had to happen between the lines. You know, like this story invites us to, to picture it taking place, to actually think what would it have been like to be there? What did it look like? What did it smell like? What was happening around us? And, and I try to do that with the Bible. And, and I think about Paul and Silas and they've been, they've been beaten, right? They, they've been 
I've actually years ago got to go to Philippi and stand on the actual spot where they would have been beaten. They're brought before this area where the kind of the town governor of sorts sits or the mayor and, and they, they're there. that's where they would have been beaten by the people and then dragged up probably about 30 feet across the street and up some stairs, now there's stairs, about 12 feet up and then there's this little prison area over there where they probably would have dropped them down, put their feet in shackles. They're in jail. They're hurting. They've had their, they're bloodied, they're bruised, they're on, sitting on stone, they've got metal around their ankles. It's about midnight and Paul says to Silas, hey Silas, you, you sleeping man? Silas is like, no, man, I'm not sleeping. I'm hurting. What do you think I'm doing? Paul's like, hey, you want to sing some songs? <laughs> Silas is like, you are weird, dude. <laughs> then they sing, right? And they sing the songs, the earthquake. Jailer comes. They're like, we're not here. It's okay. Don't take your life. I don't know why they were still there, but they were. And then they go to his house, tell him about Jesus. Everybody's getting saved. They're eating steak. They're eating cake. And then they're full. And the jailer's like... So where do you want to go now? Like maybe like maybe like back maybe like back to jail so I don't die. Like is that okay? You know. So I just I, I like to picture the conversations happening between the lines of this story. So I love a lot about it, but maybe most of all I love Lydia. Lydia, that's our attention today. That's our actor or actress. That's the person that we're going to look at today. We're going to ask what can we learn from the life of Lydia, from the role of Lydia. Now if you're not careful, you can forget about her, and that's part of the point. She plays what looks like a minor role in the story, but without her, I'm not sure we have a story. I'm not sure we're saying what we're saying. I'm not sure we're talking about this at all if it weren't for this particular woman. Now, I want you to see that in many ways, so far, we've been kind of building up to this point in this series. And I have to acknowledge, not necessarily by design, we didn't see some of what the Holy Spirit was going to do in threading together the different truths that we're talking about here. But notice we started about five weeks ago with Peter. This man who, before the Holy Spirit took over, was like risky at times and like put his foot in his mouth. Other times he was afraid and cowardly. Typically didn't do the right thing, didn't say the right thing. Then the Holy Spirit takes over and Peter's, he's talking about Jesus to whoever will listen. He's witnessing to Jesus accurately, boldly, courageously, and other people are coming to faith in him. Then we looked at Stephen, someone who did the same kind of thing to a greater extent. He was witnessing about Jesus, telling the truth about who he was. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's everything. And he lost his life because of his commitment to Jesus. He's fine with it. Come what may. I'm going to serve. I'm going to testify. Then we looked at a couple of stories. We looked at uh, Philip evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch on the one hand, and Peter uh, preaching the gospel, sharing the good news with Cornelius the Gentile on the other hand. And we saw that in both of these stories, we recognize that God is always building bridges to people who are far from him, trying to get to people who are far from him and sending us across those bridges to bring the truth and to share what we know and what we've experienced and invite people to come along for the ride. Then last week we looked at Paul and we kind of took this big bird's eye view of his entire life and saw what is really probably one of the most important truths you could reflect on. And that is the truth that even when you can't see it, precisely when you can't see it, God is working. That he has a good plan beyond what we can see. And that he's working behind the scenes to bring together the details of our story in such a way that benefits us and the people around us. And that brings us to Lydia. This woman who shows up about midway through the book of Acts and plays what seems like a minor, but is a very critical part in moving the mission forward and getting the gospel out and helping other people find joy in Jesus. A couple of things we know about Lydia, and then I'll get to the, the big thing I want us to recognize. In many ways, she's going to serve us as an example of something we see consistently throughout Acts. This is the theme of the book, one of the biggest things you're supposed to get from this book we see in her life. First of all, a couple details. We know two things about Lydia right off the surface. We know, number one, that she was wealthy. She has her own household. A woman in the first century. 
governing her entire ho- her own household, like she has her own estate. Pretty wealthy woman. And we know why she was wealthy, because she was a dealer in purple cloth. Uh, purple cloth in the ancient world was, was rich people stuff, rich folk stuff. So this is like high-end fashion. So she was kind of in the world of first century high-end fashion, and she made a lot of money doing it. So she was able to make room for, for Paul and all of his companions to stay in her house and to use her house as kind of a home base for ministry in that entire area. So she was wealthy. Second thing we know about her was that she was persuasive. She was a woman who knew how to get what she wanted. And we know this because the text says that she persuaded them. Now, I don't know if you know Paul, but he's not going to be persuaded by just anybody. He's not going to do something he doesn't want to do unless the Holy Spirit tells him. This woman said to him, listen there, Superman, you are staying at my house and you're bringing all your friends too. And he said, okay. <laughs> and they did. Lydia was, was, uh, was wealthy and Lydia was persuasive. That's some of the details of what we see in her life. But what I want you to notice is that she uses those details those things that had been given to her and those things that she had earned, she uses those particulars in a way that helps other people find joy in Jesus. Here's the the main idea that we got to see. Again, my informal version is shake what your papa gave you, but I'll give you a more grown-up version as well. I was having trouble pulling this together, so I got to acknowledge this is not my thought. I texted a couple of my students who are good at this stuff, and I was like, man, I'm preaching Lydia. I got to find a sentence that really communicates it all, and one of them shot back what to me was perfect. He said, here's the truth in Acts 16. You are who you are so they can see who he is. That's it. That's what it's about. Yeah. You are who you are. Everything about you, your personality, your resources, your history. We'll talk about some specifics later on, but everything about you, you are who you are. So they, other people can see who he, Jesus is. That's the truth. You are who you are. You ever wonder why you are who you are? You ever wish you were somebody else? You don't need to be somebody else. You just need to be the best version of you. Because God has made you, you, so that he can use you and work through, not use you, but work through you to help other people see who Jesus is and find joy in him. This story ends with celebration because a lot of people came to faith in Jesus and it begins with Lydia using what she had been given by God in order to see that through. So that's what we're going to talk about today, this idea that we all have a place in this story. And it is true that this is true of all of us, from the least to the greatest, Somebody in here is the most spiritual person in the room. God wants to use you. You are who you are so they can see who he is. Somebody in here, if we're just doing the math, is probably the least spiritual person in the room. Maybe you're like, man, that's probably me. I don't even care. You are who you are so they can see who he is. It's true of everybody. And nobody, as long as the Holy Spirit is around, nobody's allowed to say, it's not me, man. I can't do it. Maybe, maybe you guys who have the, maybe somebody else who has the gifts or somebody else who has the resources or somebody else who's just wired differently. It just can't be me. No, it can be you because it's not about you. It's about what the Holy Spirit can do when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a person's life. All you got to do is let the Holy Spirit work. Now, if we're going to do this, if we're going to play our part in this mission, and Acts is nothing if not the point that we all play our part in this mission, we're going to have to debunk some common myths, some dangerous things that we sometimes believe are true. We talk a lot about, about fighting the lies that come from our world. There are times that we got to fight the lies that come from the church, from us, because we accidentally start believing things that aren't true. And we accidentally pick up on things and then we start believing them and they're actually false. So let's just knock some of these out. If you're taking notes on the bullets, if you're not, that's fine. But if you are, I want you to cross lines through these. So the first one, myth A, is that ministry belongs to the ministers. I want you to take a pencil or a pen and just mark through that. It's just not, ministry belongs to the ministers. Everybody say, nope. Yeah, that's what we should say to that because it isn't true. Now I love, I love that we're in a place as a church 
where we can provide, uh, where we can, we can say to certain people, hey, you guys devote your like, job, your love. we're able to support financially people who can devote their work time to building up the church. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think it's a great gift. And not just because I personally profit from it, but like, b- before I came on, church, on staff here, and then the day I'm not on staff here, I'll still think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that churches can say, we have enough resources for you to devote your whole time and energy to doing church work. That's awesome. But it's dangerous because the danger is we forget who's supposed to be doing what. And we tend to think like, well, we pay you to do the ministry and we get paid to do other things. Ministry is your job. My job is teaching or engineering or whatever. And I'm telling you, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way ministry works, of the way the kingdom of God works. Of course, we have different jobs, different roles, different responsibilities. But ministry does not belong to the ministers. Ministry biblically just means serving God's kingdom. And that is a mission in which we all play an active part. It doesn't make any sense to just come sit here once a week and then go about your life without the recognition that your everyday life is a form of ministry. It just doesn't. And I don't want you to press this analogy too far, but I heard this recently. I thought it was helpful. This guy was comparing like church to football. Surprise, surprise. But he was saying the role of the pastor, the role of the preacher, it's kind of like the quarterback. So like Mark Christian is Tom Brady, you know, minus deflate gate. He didn't do it, I promise. Innocent. I'm like Alex Smith or something, I don't know. But the role of the quarterback is, right, we hustle, we huddle up once a week, right? We get here and we huddle up, we're in our huddle, and the quarterback calls some plays. Sometimes you're like, oh, that's a dumb play. But sometimes you're like, it's a great play, I like that play. That was a really good play. Telling people, did you see that play he called? I like this play, you need to listen to this play. This play is encouraging to hear. So we're calling plays, as like, all right, put your hand in there, break, break the huddle, and then everybody just kind of walks around. If everybody just goes walking through the field, meandering on, some people go to the 30-yard line, others to the 40, others to the opposite 20, and then everybody comes back a week later, and they're like, hey, quarterback, call another play, because that play was awesome. But you're like, you never run the play. Like, what's the point of calling plays? Nobody ever runs. But if you come here and you're like, hey, that was some good. I like hearing that. That's cool. That's good. But if you walk off and don't actually engage God and let God take over the details of your life, I'm not quite sure we're getting it. I think we're maybe missing the point. I think we're not understanding the purpose of our gathering. Now, our job, and I love my job here, our job is to serve serve up some truth from God's word. Just kind of hand that up to you and then send y'all out and send us out to play the game. Hear me well, because I think this is true. Most ministry happens outside the walls of the church. And that is true. Just play the numbers. Look how many people in here don't spend their daily, their daily week, don't spend their every day inside these walls. That's how it's supposed to be. We gather, and it's critical together to encourage and to remember and to be inspired by the truth of God's word and to be instructed and to take communion and to sing songs of worship. We gather, but then we gather so that we can be scattered back out and live on mission in all of the different specific corners of the world that we all inhabit. You too, and you too, and you too, everybody in the room. Ministry does not belong to the ministers. Ministry belongs to everybody, which sounds great in theory. But I'd imagine that there's some of you in the room who are thinking, yeah, you just, you just don't know my daily routine. It is not exactly dripping with spiritual inspiration, okay? Like, it's just mundane. It's just not like, doesn't feel like church. It's not how it works. Most of my life's just ordinary. I don't have the opportunity on a regular basis to do big things for God. That takes me to the second myth that we just need to debunk right now. And that is that only big moves change the world. You just need to cross a line, line across that because that is not true. It's tempting to believe that you've got to do something big for God in order to make a substantial impact for God. Not true. That is not how it works. It is kind of like football in that regard. You know what one of the keys is to a great offense? Blocking. People, people moving the right parts, and parts around so that we can move forward. And you know what one of the keys is to a great defense? Folks being in the right position at the start of the play. It's the stuff the cameras don't catch. 
It's the stuff that most people in the audience don't see. Same thing's true with church. Just think about the amount of ripples you can create when you toss a little bit of a little tiny rock into a pond and it just goes from there. I need you to realize if we're going to do this well, you need to understand that like you change the world every week, every day. And not just because you did something big, but because in our world, there is no small. We live in a world where every action you take sets off, uh, sets off an almost infinite chain of reactions, very few of which you could ever see, the vast majority of which we could never predict or plan to initiate. No, the way you live your life matters because every little moment has the potential to change everything. That's the way our world works. Scientists call it the butterfly effect. I don't care what you call it. I just want us to recognize that we need to see that Lydia altered the course of history by doing things that most of us would consider small. And you can too. Maybe, uh, maybe, I don't, maybe you're an auto mechanic and you got a shop. Could be a big shop, could be a little shop. And there's this kid from the neighborhood that just keeps coming and hanging out at your shop. And this is annoying for a while, but eventually you put him to work. You're like, buddy, if you're going to hang out here, you're going to clean some stuff. You're going to carry some stuff. I'm going to put you to work. I'll pay you a little. Here's a job. You start paying him a little to do some odds and ends around the place. Then he kind of gets an interest in the cars and he becomes an apprentice of sorts. So you're working alongside this kid and he starts to open up to you. You don't talk much. He doesn't either. But he starts to talk here and there about his family, about his home life. And it's a mess. And eventually you just say to him, not much, you just say to him, listen, buddy, I care about you. I just got to tell you the truth. You want to get your life right? You got to start by getting right with God. He says, getting right with who? You say, getting right with God. He's like, oh, what does that mean? You say, come to church. He starts coming to church with you maybe once a month at first. I don't know. But eventually it becomes a little bit more frequent than every week. Then he starts engaging. Then he legitimately listens to the message, hears this truth of salvation, commits his life to Jesus, gets baptized in that water, grows up in this place, meets a lady, gets married, has kids, raises his kids to follow Jesus. Maybe his kids go off to become evangelists. Maybe it's the next Billy Graham. I don't know. And thousands of people are in heaven for eternity all because you took the time to listen to some kids in an auto mechanic shop. This is not crazy. That's how it works. That's how God's kingdom moves forward. You can call it butterfly factor, whatever you want. Again, I don't care what you call it. I just want you to recognize that every single one of us leave a mark. It's about doing little things and letting a big God take it from there. The third thing I just need to make sure we're clear on, third thing we need to debunk is this myth that God doesn't want your ability. He just wants your availability. That is not, maybe it's half true. He does want your availability, but cross out the first part of that. God doesn't want your ability? <laughs> yes, he does. That's why you're able to do these things. He gave you these abilities. He gave you the things that you have used and honed and worked so that you could get good at stuff. Every detail, every skill you have, every ability you have, he wants you to turn your abilities into availabilities. And this is where Lydia serves for us as an example of something we see throughout the book of Acts. I want to go through a number of these. I know lists can be dangerous, but hang with me for this because what I'm trying to do is just expand our imagination a little bit. If you buy into this idea that your details, your life can be used for ministry, for kingdom work, I want you to start to think about some of the ways this is true. I've whittled it down to 10 because I didn't want to take all day, but I want to show you 10 different things that we see people in Acts using to further God's kingdom. And I want you to think about how this could be true in your life. First view we see in this story, number one is wealth. Lydia was wealthy. Maybe you're saying, well, I don't have any money. That's okay. There's none of the things on the list. But for some of you who do, you, you, maybe you're already using it for the kingdom purposes, and that's awesome. But maybe you're not. I don't know. Point is, you can. Wealth, it's a gift from God to be used to increase joy that we find following Jesus. Two, personality. I'm just going to say it. Lydia was bossy. I'm just going to say it. Some of y'all are bossy. 
I like this point last two services because I'm seeing husbands and wives kind of look at each other. Not as much this service, which means you're not bossy or you are afraid to look at each other. I don't know. <laughs> but the point is like probably there's times when you need to be less bossy. But if you're bossy, maybe your bossiness is like Lydia's bossiness. It's designed to help you move the mission forward. Whatever your personality is, maybe you're the opposite of bossy. Maybe you're shy. That too. Like whatever it is, wherever you fall on the different personality tests and exams, whatever people have been telling you your whole life is a quirk, maybe it is a quirk, but it's not just a quirk. It's an opportunity that God has given you. And how he'll use that, I don't know, but I know he will. Number three, political power. Paul does that here in this context. You might have missed it at the end of the story, but they like, they're like, hey, you guys can go. Paul says, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. You just beat me without a trial. That's a serious issue. The whole city of Philippi could be in trouble. And he knows it. And so what does he do? He makes sure they know that they've done him wrong because now he knows when he leaves, you better believe these city authorities are going to be taking care of that church because if they're not, Paul's going to hear about it and he's going to come back and he's going to get them into trouble. Some of you have power, Web City, Orinoco, Joplin, Carl Junction, wherever. Some of you have some actual power. And I don't know that there's every week going to be an opportunity to use it for the kingdom, but eventually there will be. Keep your eyes open. Number four, position. It's similar, but it's slightly different. You see this in Acts a lot of times with soldiers or, or authorities within the military in their world. You have these captains and these soldiers and these officers who use their position oftentimes to protect Paul or in other ways to make sure that the kingdom keeps going. Not even always believers, but in your case, if you have a position of authority, maybe you're the boss at work, maybe it's your company, maybe you're just a shift manager. Either way, like maybe you're the teacher and you own your classroom, or maybe you stay at home and you run the, like, run the home. Whatever it is, if you've got position, then use that for the kingdom. Number five, we'll kind of move through these quickly. Number five, possessions. Barnabas, who we'll talk about later on in the, service, in the series, Barnabas, uh, he sold some properties one time so that people who didn't have food would be able to eat. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've got stuff that can be used. Some of it to be sold, some of it not to be sold, just used in keeping for the kingdom, for the church. Similarly, number six, property. When Paul went into Ephesus in Acts 19, he pretty quickly got kicked out of the synagogue. That's where he would preach and people would come hear about Jesus. He got kicked out. What's he going to do now? Well, he went right next door because this guy named Tyrannus said, I got a lecture hall. You can have your meetings there. And he provided that place to Paul for two years so that they would have an actual location to gather for Paul to talk about Jesus. Number six, job. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. What are you? Priscilla and Aquila took Paul in, who was also a tent maker, a leather worker. And he took them in and they gave him a network and they gave him some places to work and some people to talk to. And that's how the gospel made its way through the city of Corinth. I don't know what your job is, but I know that God can use it. I don't care if you spend your day in front of a computer, you spend your day with other people, you spend your day in front of objects. Like whatever it is, it can be used by God. Keep your eyes open. Number eight, intelligence. Maybe you're like Apollos. Maybe you're just sharp, great, awesome. Be the best in your field and find ways to use your intelligence to glorify God. And maybe it's not just you're just smart. Maybe it's there's like a portion of the world that you just get. Technology, baking, I don't know what it is. Like you just get it, right? Use that. Number nine, language. If you can speak another language, you better believe that God intends at some point in your life to use that for the purposes of his church. Be ready. Keep your eyes open. Be available. Number 10, your family history. We've all got this. Paul one time went on a mission, and part of the purpose of this mission was to join together Jews and Gentiles in one people. And so early on in the mission, he came across this young guy, Timothy, who was of mixed ethnicity. He was half Jewish, half Greek. Paul said, are you a believer in Jesus? He said, yes. He said, I want you to come with me because your unique family story 
which in his world probably at times would have been a source of pain to him. Your unique family history can be used for precisely what God is doing right now in this moment. That's just 10, and that's just designed to get you started. So reflect on your life. Ask the Spirit to show you as you think about the details in your story what can be used so that other people can find joy in Jesus. And whatever it is, please don't forget, whoever you are, you are who you are so they can see who he is. Amen? Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.